0: Mark 1, 9 through 15, God speaks in his word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from the heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. All right, good to see everybody. Um, If you're a guest with us, man, we're we're really honored that you'd be here. It's not lost on us that you had to wake up on a Sunday, and um, and uh, maybe uh, skip brunch to be here. And so, just thank you, man. We're honored. If you have any questions about the church at all, as we go throughout this sermon throughout today, man, we would love to talk with you um, about the church. We especially would love to talk with you about Jesus. We love Jesus, and Hopefully you can tell as we sing that, man, we, um, we really, everything we do is centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. So at Frontline, if you're new to us, um, we're preaching through the Bible, and we preach through the book of Job, which is really, really easy because it's not a complicated book at all. Uh, Job is really complicated, and we did that in seven weeks, and we're just moving right along, man. We're in Mark now, and we're actually going to be in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, For over 40 weeks so um, you know just buckle in man it's gonna be quite a long haul but man mark is so packed so that's what we're doing today we're in mark it's our third week to be in mark and let me just give you a refresher for people that maybe haven't been here uh, leading up to this point mark is one of the four Gospels in the Bible Gospels tell the story the narrative of Jesus Christ God in the flesh on earth the Christian life is about us saying as people that we believe that Jesus was not just a man but he was actually 100% man and 100% God and because we can't save ourselves we had to look to God to rescue us and the good news is he did in Jesus he lived a perfect life which you couldn't do on your best day He died a death that you deserve. He was actually buried. He descended to the dead. And then he rose again. And because of his resurrection, we have victory. We will be resurrected as well. That's kind of the statement of Christianity. The Gospels really tell the story of that. Mark is maybe the most intense Gospel. 16 chapters only. It's the shortest But man, he packs a lot in there. So we're just moving at this rapid pace to watch this gospel story of Jesus. And just a little bit of context, if you haven't been here the past couple of weeks. Context really does matter. That means who wrote this book, when was it written, and who was it written to, and what were the circumstances surrounding their life? So this is the gospel of Mark. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. Mark was a Christian man, part of the first church, and he was close to Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. Mark did his ministry life with Peter. This is an account, really, of Peter's story of Jesus that Mark is writing down. He's a note. But there's lots of sort of subpoints to just the story of Jesus. At this time in Rome, the Christian church, the, the first Gentile church, and when I say Gentile, I mean simply those that were not Jewish. The first Gentile church had heard the gospel, they surrendered to Jesus, and they lived in Rome. And it is um, an understatement to say that their environment was hostile towards them. The emperor in Rome hated Christians, he hated everything. Nero hated everything that wasn't him. He threw everybody under the bus. And the trouble with that is that they trained you, they manipulated you, brainwashed you to think that if you're a Roman citizen, that your emperor was actually a son of God. As a matter of fact, they would announce when the emperor was born that this is the gospel of the birth of the beginning of Nero or Octavian or Augustus. Here's where it gets really tricky. When your emperor, who's the son of God, and we're supposed to believe that this is good news the gospel when he's murdering people and blaming it on others when he's throwing people out and blaming it on anyone other than himself when he's not a virtuous man at all your idea of god starts to warp just a little bit that's not good news at all christians were facing intense persecution because nero used them as a scapegoat in 64 ad the whole city of rome burned everybody knew it was nero's fault he blamed the christians This guy would take Christians, and he would put them on poles, cover them in tar, and light them on fire to light up his parties. He also would make people pay to see Christians in the crowd, see Christians in the Roman Colosseum have animal skins put all over them and sewn to them so that wild beasts would think they're animals and devour them in front of a paid audience. So imagine being a Christian. Because you're scared for your life, you can't even meet in public. You have to actually meet in the city graveyard, the catacombs, where there's decaying bodies around so that nobody finds you out. That's the context of this gospel. You're used to hearing the gospel of the birth of Nero, the good news of the birth of Nero, the son of God. And what we learned last week was out of the gate, man, Mark comes firing, and he says, verse 1 of Mark 1, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that's the context that we're in. We're going to jump through this, man. This is only six verses today, but I believe that within this six verses, is more than proof that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the law and prophets. And I think we're going to see that today. So here's what we have today in this story, man. Jesus has showed up. John the Baptist was a wild man in the wilderness, eating wild locusts. He was prophesying about Jesus. He said, there's one coming that I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. And now is the moment where John the Baptist in the wilderness sees Jesus. Jesus comes in out of Nazareth. So let's start here. The first thing I want you to see about is the spirit and the water. Mark 1, 8 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan and when he came up out of the water immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven and it said this you are my beloved son with you I am well pleased what a crazy moment jesus comes from a small town in nazareth which noted as saying nothing good comes out of nazareth He comes from a small town out into the country, the wilderness, to be baptized by a wild country dude. (laughs) John the Baptist was wild, man. He ate wild honey and locusts, camel hair, and he was a little bit wild. There's probably a few of you in the room that are a little bit like that today. Just raise your hand, I'm just kidding, don't raise your hand. I probably have to raise my hand, to be honest. This makes sense to me. I'm kind of a country kid. I grew up in a small town in Louisiana. When someone describes the woods or the wilderness or whatever, I'm like, I'm pretty sure John the Baptist was my uncle. I know all about him. And so you can imagine like, for John the Baptist to have said, in the wilderness, for Jesus, the Son of God, to come out there, it's like, what is going on here? Why would he come all the way out there? What had been happening was revival, honestly, up until this point. The Bible describes what's happening with John the Baptist is All of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem, major city, was coming out to be baptized. And John was preparing the way for Jesus. He even said he's got, this is great, but there's one coming that's greater than me. I can't even untie his sandals. So now Jesus comes. What would it have been like to be John the Baptist and know that this is the Son of God coming to be baptized by me? Surely would have been a bit shaky, a bit nervous. Jesus is participating in something that seems unusual. It doesn't make a lot of sense just kind of passing by it. Baptism is for the sinner. To go into the water as a sinner, you're saying, man, I trust in Jesus, I believe him. This is my act of obedience, my entry into the family, into the kingdom, into the commonwealth of God, is baptism, it is a command." Which, by the way, if you're a Christian in the room, if you've trusted Jesus in belief, we're going to talk about this later, faith without works is dead. You need to be baptized. Jesus is not going to be baptized because he's sinful. He doesn't need to repent. He's the only sinless one. He's never committed a sin. He never will. He's not being baptized for the sins he might commit. Jesus is doing something incredibly profound, and this is the theme of this whole thing. Two things that are happening here. Jesus is becoming a sufficient high priest who is able to identify with his people. Think about this. His people who are in exile, throughout the history of Israel, throughout the history of God's people, they were in exile, they were in the wilderness, We learned this when they were freed from the Egyptians, God's people. They went out into the wilderness for 40 years. We feel that way. We feel like strangers. You ever feel that way just as a Christian? Like, Think about all the craziness of the world. You ever just feel like with political parties or with whatever it is, you're like, I don't really fit. (laughs) I don't really fit. I feel different. I feel opposed to this in some way. Exiles, strangers, it feels like this is not home. There's another place. There's a garden. There's Eden somewhere that we've been driven out east of. Jesus is going to be baptized because he's becoming a sufficient high priest. He's identifying with his people. The wilderness was a place of abandonment. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. The wilderness was a place for exiles. Jesus goes out to be exiled. He goes to the waters of baptism like every other Christian who has ever been baptized. And he submits to another man, which is what he asked us to do, submit to him. Jesus is becoming a sufficient high priest. In baptism, we are, we go underwater and we come out and we say that we are identifying with, and not, it's more than just a sign it's supernatural. It's, it's one of the two sacraments of the church As Christians, when we get baptized, we're identifying with fully, like supernaturally identifying with the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus when we come out of the water. Jesus gets baptized. He's identifying with us. He's proving the incarnation in a profound way. Baptism is the entry into the kingdom of God, and Jesus' first step into preaching the kingdom of God is baptism. The other thing is this, is Jesus is once again proving that he's God. I love the way Mark starts out his book. Everybody around would have known the story of creation, especially God's people. They would have known that Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's what Mark starts with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's something that happens in a more profound way here. What we see is... An even more detailed look at the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who were there in creation, created the heavens and the earth together. And now we see them again together. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Father said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Father, Son, and Spirit. It's interesting the Bible calls the Spirit like a dove. That's not exactly threatening. (laughs) And it's also not helpful for a lot of you guys that don't view the Holy Spirit as God, which is the way that we practice. We don't practice like He's Yahweh. We don't practice like the Holy Spirit is El Shaddai along with the Father and the Son. So Dove makes sense to a lot of us. It's like, well, the Holy Spirit seems a little bit fragile. He's not. That's not what this is about. He's almighty, all-knowing, all-present, Father, Son, and Spirit. Aramaic translation of Genesis 1 would have been what they, the dominant translation that they read in the day. There's one other time in Scripture, one other time, that we see the Spirit and the water together. And again, it goes back to this, Jesus is proving that He is God Almighty. In Aramaic, the translations of Genesis 1-2 would be this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering, and Aramaic adds, like a dove, over the face of the waters. The sequence that we're seeing right now in Mark would have made major sense to the readers of the day. It would have forced them to wrestle with the reality. You either say yes to it or no. You can't avoid it. Jesus is claiming to be God. (laughs) And God the Father confirms it, and so does God the Holy Spirit. This is not just a man. This man created the heavens and the earth. Now we see Jesus in the water. Now we see the Spirit. Now we see God speak, and he says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. I love this. Just quickly, as a side, I love that the Father was pleased with Jesus before he ever performed any ministry. It didn't take performance for God to be pleased with him. For some of you ministers in the room, some of you guys that want to be ministers, some of you people that just, even our Christians, let me just imply this to you and just implore it maybe like stop trying to gain God's approval he approves of you work out of the goodness and kindness of God start with rest in his love in this moment the water the spirit converge God speaks this is my son with whom I'm well pleased and there's the temptation of Jesus that follows in the wilderness in the same way that creation played out the water the spirit hovering God speaks let there be light And then comes the temptation. Also, what we see here is this wonderful, beautiful, practical representation of the Trinity. And it's not just a representation. This is the actual Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit together, like always. They're showing us how they work. And here's how they work. The Father honoring and glorifying the Son. The Son glorifying the Father as well. The Spirit coming to empower and glorify the Son. All together, in tandem, throughout eternity, glorifying one another, loving one another in the most unselfish way. It's not just that Jesus is saying that He is Yahweh. He's saying that, but He's also modeling for us how to be a creation under God. How to be man. Live unselfishly, Father, Son, and Spirit together. He's reversing the curse of Adam because what happened with Adam was, even though he had perfect communion, perfect relationship with his wife, with nature, with the world around him, and especially with God, what he did was he broke that communion. By falling to the temptation, Adam becomes selfish and he disobeys. He wants more. He wants more than what God has allowed him to have. Jesus reverses that in this moment. He lives selflessly. Philippians says, He did not see equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is selfless, and so does the entirety of the Trinity. It's our example. We struggle to be selfless in our lives. We're always fighting against our own self-absorption. So we need a better model. We need to look at the Trinity not as the Trinity is a mystery. There's no doubt about it. Nobody who like there are people in the room today that could explain it better and and more fully than me, but nobody in their right mind could ever say they could fully explain the Trinity. You know why? Because they're not God. The Trinity is our example. In this way, it's not complex. Father, Son, and Spirit in harmony, selflessly in relationship. We've gone another way. Because of the curse, we live selfishly with each other. Because of the curse, we're all self-absorbed. I read this quote this week from a great book that I would recommend everybody get and read as we're going through Mark. It's by a guy named Tim Keller, and the name of the book is Jesus the King. Please pick that up if you want. Here's what he said. We have gone the way of self-centeredness, and self-centeredness destroys relationships. There's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. How am I feeling? How am I doing? How are treating how are people treating me? How am I proving myself? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I being treated justly? Self-absorption leaves us static. There's nothing more disintegrating. Why do we have wars? Why do we have class struggles? Why family breakdowns? Why are our relationships constantly exploding? It's the darkness of self-centeredness. I read that this week. I was trying to sermon prep. And I immediately was like... that was convicting (laughs) that was personally convicting and I was like man I'm trying to prepare a sermon to give to people and um, what happened was I just was like I'm all these things I'm all these things it's what you are it's what I am it's the reality that we live in because it's the lie that we believed and here's the lie ultimately we would deny it verbally but just look at our life We believe the universe should and does revolve around us. My decisions, my view of God, how God should be, how the world should act. But what we secretly desire, what we really do want in our heart, is to be reconciled to right relationship. When I describe the selflessness, the care, the glorification of each other, of the Father, Son, and Spirit, everybody in the room says, Oh man, that sounds nice. That sounds nice. I want to be loved like that. I want to love like that. I want to be that. We need somebody to come. We need somebody to come and make it right, to like make things new again. That's what Jesus is doing. We need a king to come and rescue us from this like barren, relational, self-absorbed wasteland where we've wandered for so long. Jesus is making an announcement right now. He's saying, I'm the king that you need. I'm the king that you need, and I am Yahweh. That's why the news of Jesus is good news. It's the mark of a true king coming to once again restore relationship and bring the kingdom of the triune God. So this is massive. Where Adam disobeyed and went into the wilderness, where Adam disobeyed and sinned and was driven into the wilderness east of Eden. Jesus now, as the new Adam, obeys and is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The second thing is we need to see is his journey to the wilderness. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. We learned last week about wilderness, what the wilderness is in the Old Testament throughout Scripture. It's a place of temptation for God's people. It's a place of exile. It's a place of like not knowing where food comes from. It's a place of... Um, anxiety, brokenness, loneliness. It's a place of outcasts. Jesus is now led by the Spirit, which is so interesting, man. Jesus needs to be led by the Spirit, chooses to trust and obey the Spirit. And he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And every time I read this growing up, I would think, man, that's pretty, that's only 40 days. (laughs) It's only 40 days of temptation. I think I can manage 40 days. Jesus was only tempted 40 days? Like, I thought he was supposed to be stout. That's not a lot. That's not what's happening here. There were more ways that Jesus was tempted outside of this 40 days. For instance, the garden tempted to just say, let this cup pass from me, but then immediately says, God, not my will, but yours. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's identifying with and proving that he fulfills all the law and prophets 40 days in the wilderness. Remember Adam? Adam was tempted in the garden. Adam fell. He and Eve were driven into the wilderness east of Eden. Adam did what everybody does, he eventually died. You remember the great flood of Noah? The great flood of Noah was 40 days. Noah eventually died. Moses Moses was given a lot as a young man. He was tempted. He fell to temptation. He murdered a man. He was driven out into the wilderness for 40 years. Then God comes to Moses in a burning bush and asks him to be the great mediator between the slave driver, the Pharaoh, and all of his people who were in captivity. He does. He delivers them out of captivity and then they are in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses eventually dies. They don't get to the promised land. How about Ezekiel? Ezekiel had laid on his side for the sins of Judea, praying for them, bearing the sins of Judea for 40 days. Ezekiel eventually died. Saul, David, Solomon, the great kings of Israel, all reigned 40 years apiece. All died. And the story of David and Goliath, which is literally a story about Jesus and Leviathan, the great sin. David represents the people of God. Goliath represents the enemies of the people of God. Goliath goes out as a representation of his people. He taunts Israel for 40 days. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and where all those men died, they fell to temptation. Jesus does not fall to temptation, and he comes out triumphant, having resisted the enemy. And the best news about all of that is all those guys are dead, and Jesus is still alive today. John Mark is also clear to point out that Jesus was among wild animals. It's like, thank you, Mark. We didn't actually need that detail, but I'm glad to know that Jesus had animals around him. It's amazing what just the, the level of detail and intentionality here when the Holy Spirit wrote this book through Mark. Wild animals would have been comfort to you because for Jesus to be among them because what you were experiencing as a first century Christian in this day was wild animals devouring your friends just for following Jesus. Wild animals is kind of a scary thing to you. What Mark is pointing out is that Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted. Hebrews later points out he's tempted in every way yet without sin. And he's not scared of wild animals. Everything is subject to his authority. That's hope. We needed a king who understands the terrors of the wildness. We need a king who understands the craziness of the fight that we're in. And he does. He's been there. He's done it all. Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I love this point. Just a side, starts this moment saying the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Just a side point, man. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed to be led by the Holy Spirit, then you need to be led by the Holy Spirit. Last thing is this we've got the Spirit in the water and, and in the wilderness, and now Jesus comes out of the wilderness having resisted the devil, and he preaches the kingdom. After John John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. For a man to have said this in this context, in this day, everybody's ears would have perked up. For him to say, the time, 40 days in the wilderness resisting temptation, the time is fulfilled. All the prophets, all the law, past, present, and future, the time is fulfilled. And then for him to follow it by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Not it's coming. Not look for it to come behind me. Jesus is saying that translation is the kingdom of God is happening now. It's near. It's with us. Jesus is saying like the thing that you have been waiting for for all of these years and centuries is now being fulfilled in me. I am the kingdom of God. Repent. For him to say, repent, it's like they would have said, like, who in the world, who do you think you are? You cannot, you cannot cause people's sins to go away. You're not God. Jesus is saying, I, that's what I am. I am God. Repent and believe the good news. Here's the good news. All of the time that you've been waiting for, everything you've been waiting for in your life, for God to come, for him to bring his kingdom, is happening now In me. I am God. His kingdom is at hand. Now is the time. Repent and believe. What a battle line. With his proclamation comes instructions belief and repentance. Repentance and belief. Belief is this it's pretty easy to define. Most of us in the room would say, Yeah, I've got belief. Poll most every American, you know, they believe. A lot of them would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I don't even know what it is they believe, but some of them would say, I believe in something. But you look at their life, and it's just, so belief is not hard to come by. Belief is faith to trust in something that you maybe haven't seen. It's faith to say yes to something that is counterintuitive at times. Belief is trusting something wholeheartedly with your heart first and then your head following. Belief is just like the thing that you know. You don't know why you know, but you know that's faith, that's belief. Here's where it gets tricky is when it comes to repentance. If Jesus would have simply said, just believe, that would have been a different ball game. But he said, repent and believe. Believing in and of itself is not enough. Belief needs wings. It needs feet. It needs to move. It needs action. Repentance is the acting out of your belief. I don't even know if this metaphor works. It's the only one I could think of. But if I, if I say that I believe something, but then I do things to counter that belief, then I have to question my own belief. Let me put it as simple as I can. I know I'm about to sound so stupid. If I say that this pulpit is made of wood, and I think I know what wood is, and I believe that it's made of wood, but then I try to pour the pulpit into this cup and drink it, I don't actually believe that this pulpit's made of wood. My actions don't line up with what I'm saying is reality. In the same way, if you say that you believe in Jesus, unless you believe that he's just a prophet, you cannot say that you believe that he's the son of God and then have no fruit of the spirit in your life. You have got to follow your belief Act towards it. If I say I believe that he's the king over my life, that means every part of my life, my sexuality, the way I treat people, the way I receive treatment. If I believe that Jesus is the king over every part of my life, then I don't get to make my own decisions for myself. Now, the best news about all of that is that he's a good king. He's actually looking out for us. But that's kind of beside the point. That's just, praise God for that. That's just, he is the king first. Thank God that he is a great king. But ultimately, your life ain't about you anymore when you follow Jesus. That's how you lay your life down. I can't say that I believe in Jesus and have no action to follow it. Love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You don't have to be an expert at all these things. You never will in the history of your life. Like your whole life, you will never be an expert at these things. What you have to do, though, is there's got to be evidence of belief. And that's what repentance is. It's belief taking steps. preaching to myself, man. Repentance is stepping towards God. It's turning away from disbelief. With our feet, with our heart, with our mind, with our mouth, with our actions. James 1.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Are we saved by faith alone Yes, we absolutely are. What is the proof of being saved by faith alone? Turning towards God, turning away from sin. That's the proof. The fruit of the Spirit. Repentance is the mark. It's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to what we believe in our life. Man, Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. He's proven it here. Comes out of the wilderness and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So that's the invitation for you today. That's the invitation for me. There are several in the room that don't know Jesus. This is foreign to you to think about like, Jesus being king over your whole life. You might like church. You might have been to church a billion times. I don't a billion would be a lot, but you might know all about church stuff, man, but you just never repented and believed, or believed and repented. And then there are lots of you that are, are Christians. I mean, you've you're a son or daughter of God. He saved you, and that's never going to change. You're always his son or daughter throughout eternity now. But you're realizing that you have not been putting feet to your belief. And you need to repent. All of us do. We're about to take the Eucharist. We're about to take the table of the Lord. It is an opportunity for you to come to Jesus and just own it, man. Just say, like, I'm not walking out repentance in my life. And if you're not a Christian, if you're realizing right now that you're not a Christian, don't take this meal with us. It's not because we want to treat you like outsiders. I, I, that's the last thing I want to do, but it's, I want you to realize the weight and the gravity. It is so detrimental for you to say that you're a Christian when you're not. Come to Jesus. Don't take the meal. Just submit to him. Ask him to change your life. Be saved today.